Hello, and welcome to Research Software Engineering Stories. This episode of RSE Stories is brought to you from the UK and Europe, in collaboration with the Society of Research Software Engineering in the UK. My name is Peter Schmidt, I'm a Research Software Engineer at the University College of London, and I will be your host for this episode. My guest in this episode is Paul Richmond. Paul leads the RSE Group at the University of Sheffield in the UK, and at the time of recording, he was just elected as the new president of the Society for Research Software Engineering. Hi, Paul, and welcome to the show. Paul, I think congratulations are in order because you're the new president for the Society of Research Software Engineering in the UK. Well, yes, yeah, thank you very much for inviting me on the show. I'm, I'm, I'm really uh, delighted and excited to be talking to you, Peter. And, uh, and the first thing I'd like to say is congratulations on the series so far. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. It's a great thing for the, the RSE community to hear, uh, hear more about what people are doing. And, and this, this is a fantastic way of hearing about the, the individual stories. So I really appreciate what you're doing. Well, thank you. Um, so in, in terms of the society, I mean, the, the society has been going for quite some time, not necessarily as a society, but as, a, uh, as an association and before that as, as a community. And how I got involved in it is, is something we're going to maybe explore a bit while we talk today. But my, 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 the way that I got involved specifically with the society was by attending the, the, the conference and hearing that they, um, they wanted new trustees for the, the membership of the board volunteering myself forward and giving a pitch about about why I think I'd be a good trustee and a, a good person to, to, to contribute towards the society. And then uh, being elected and, and then within the, the trustees, I was then nominated as, as the vice uh, president. So I was assisting Alice Brett for, uh, for the last year. And we've put this model in place where the we have this overlap now so that a the assistant then becomes um, the master, if you like. So we have uh, <laughs> a, a, a vice treasurer and a vice president. And it's, it's necessary really because you know, the, the society is keen to attract new people. Uh, mm-hmm. We have this, this process of elections every two years, but we need to ensure some continuity as well. So we have this idea of having overlap where we have a vice that, that shadows the president. We've replicated that across the society and it's going to be a fantastic test, in fact, um, as we welcome the new trustees on board uh, as to how, how well we've done in, in setting up those processes. I think we're going to talk about the uh, society and research software engineering in general a little bit later. But before you actually got to the first conference and before you got fellowship and trustees, I mean, there was quite an acad- academic career that you pursued. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I did follow somewhat of an academic career, but I've always been uh, masquerading as an academic, if you like, Peter. So um, obviously... To... What does that mean? Well, Mas- it means in order to, to kind of uh, do some of the things that I've done, I've, I've had to present myself as, uh, as an academic because that's, that's what's existed. You've got to fit within the, the kind of the constraints of what existed within the university. Uh, and, and research software engineering is quite new, and I've I've been around for a little while. Prior to, to where I am now, I obviously started as a researcher doing my PhD, and, and that's probably true of quite a lot of, of RSEs. Not all of them, but quite a lot start down a kind of a research path and realise that they have this kind of a desire to develop software rather than necessarily undertake research. Part of your PhD, of course, is that you that you have to do research, not not development, but research. Uh, and, and really what quite a lot of technical people develop uh, in that PhD process is the ability to kind of masquerade what they really like to do, which is the software development as, as a piece of research, right? So they find an application for it 
or they, they collaborate with someone who can apply what they're developing. And it's it's a great way of kind of learning what, what kind of RSEs do. So, so beyond that, then, again, the term RSE wasn't really known to me at the beginning of my career. Um, and I, I was reasonably successful in attracting uh, research funding, but it was always a about software development so it was always about uh, collaborating with others it was always about writing software to facilitate research but then presenting the 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 kind of the impact of that if you like and the breadth of that is the thing that helped me initially with an academic career so what was the academic career in so you mentioned research a couple of times what kind of research did you do this is it so this this is why being an RSC is is difficult so the research that i was doing was kind of novel software engineering i was applying gpu computing to a lot of things and i was i was particularly looking at agent based modeling and applying gpu computing to speed up agent based modeling which in itself there are aspects of that that are novel research so some of the algorithms that are developed can be described as novel research they're not particularly very high impact research because they're mostly around kind of development the larger impact is by applying that to a specific domain, applying it to, say, computational biology. GPU program is quite exciting, and I think there's a lot of activity in that area, for instance, also in machine learning. So what makes GPU programming special for you? I was interested firstly in uh, computer graphics, and then I came to the realization that you could uh, use GPUs, graphics processing units, for, for doing more than graphics. And it was at a time when this wasn't very well supported. So what you had to do is you had to kind of wrap your general purpose algorithm into uh, like graphics primitives. So if you wanted to do a matrix operation, you had to create a texture and encode all of your data into a, an RGB uh, A values of textures. And then you had to misuse the graphics pipeline in order to force it to, to use these pr- programmable parts of the pipeline to, to kind of perform a linear algebra on textures and then you'd read it back out to a texture. So it was, it was really contrived and quite awful. Um, but, but also exciting. It was, it was exciting because it was at the forefront yeah. of, of kind of people doing that. And, and the results were fantastic because it meant that you could speed up algorithms in ways that people hadn't anticipated and a whole kind of community grew around that. Unfortunately, things have moved on quite considerably. So we have proper languages for developing algorithms on GPUs now. Uh, which has really kind of been a massive step change in the ability of people to to apply them. You talked a bit about machine learning. So uh, machine learning and AI are obviously a huge growth area, but they're not the only area in which GPUs are applied. Um, I think that the reason there's been such a success in that is because of the languages and, and software and technology uh, that's been available to, to make GPUs accessible to people. It's meant that there's been a huge explosion in uh, in software that's been developed to facilitate things like AI and machine learning. And that's really been uh, the, the transitional thing that's meant that people are, can be users of GPUs. And it's really opened it up to, to broader audiences. And, and, and now to get benefit out of GPUs, you don't even necessarily need to know that you're using a GPU. If you're an AI machine learning researcher mm. it's, it's abstracted away and that's not necessarily true of all areas of, of kind of more traditional science and simulation there's still quite a lot that needs to be done in terms of software development to support core research algorithms and processes and simulations if you like and and that's the part that particularly excites me you mentioned agent-based simulation before and i wonder what that is actually when we talk about agent-based simulation what we're what we're talking about is the idea of uh, describing a system, 
a complex system in terms of its individual units. And an agent is a, is a representation of an individual unit within a system. And what happens as part of agent-based simulation is when those individual units are simulated together and when they interact, you get emergent complex behavior. So a simple example that I always kind of go to when, when explaining agent-based modeling is, is a flock of birds. So you can simulate a flock of birds and flocking behavior by giving an individual agent some really simple rules. So you can say, for example, that, that a bird should avoid other birds so that it doesn't collide. It should try to get towards the center of its perceived group for safety to avoid predators. It should try and match the speed of, of other birds around it. And just through those three really simple rules and combined, you see beautiful uh, kind of emergent patterns and behavior occur. And that, that kind of concept, that abstraction is, is true across a huge area of, of scientific research. So computational biology, neuroscience, we simulate neurons and, and you see uh, intelligent behavior, transportation. It's across all different scales of behavior that this, this abstraction can be used and applied to, to kind of understand systems and conduct computational experiments. Could you take us through one concrete example where you actually applied the technique? So one of the areas that we're looking at is uh, transportation. So there's a particular demand uh, within the, the kind of the transportation sector to uh, be able to simulate larger systems and, and not necessarily simulate larger systems, but to simulate them faster so that the process of uh, discovery can, can be undertaken much more much more quickly. When, when you talk about system, what would what, what the system be in terms of transportation? Traffic in so a that, that city? Would be or... Road traffic, yeah. So it would be simulating mm -hmm. individual vehicles on the road. We've done this at an individual level um, with agent-based simulation and demonstrated that GPUs are able to get around about 20 times speed up over kind of multi-core approaches, comparing with kind of commercial software that people are using to undertake these types of investigations at the moment. We've worked with commercial partners to kind of demonstrate that. But we've also done this at a macroscopic level. So working with Atkins in the UK who, who do uh, simulations for TfL and, and the Highways Agency, they, ha they look after a number of large strategic uh, models which are used uh, by consultants for making uh, decisions about, about infrastructure changes, for example, we're able to show that uh, some of the algorithms that we can apply on the GPU are able to kind of effectively speed that up by quite a considerable amount. Given that there's a huge range of, of simulations and, and parameters and conditions that need to be considered when, when making kind of infrastructure changes, it's, it makes quite a considerable difference to the, to the, scape of simula to the scope of simulation sorry, that can be undertaken. Yeah, well, just for the benefit of the listener, TfL is the Transport for London and is the authority in London. It looks over the transportation, not only of public transport like underground and buses, but also road systems. You mentioned you compare that with commercial systems. How, how well did you fare? Uh, we've seen some, some, some very good results. I have to say it does, it does vary. The, the finishing line always tends to, to move with industry. So we, we get a good result. <laughs> the, the, goal, the goalposts shift, if you like. But we've, we've seen speed ups of kind of almost an order of magnitude in kind of performance. Of course, we can't, we can't improve the performance of every aspect of that software. So we kind of focus on, on a particular part of it. And we've, we've gone about as far as we can with the particular algorithm that we've focused down on. We're still in the process of, of working with them and hoping that they will then commercialize that software and make it available.
We talked about transport systems. I believe you also worked in healthcare, didn't you, or healthcare systems in general. Could you give us an example of that? Flame GPU in particular is being applied on a number of EU projects at the moment. So it's been uh, applied to a large EU project called Strichivad, uh, which is looking at tuberculosis modelling. So this is a cellular level model of uh, the, the immune system, and we're conducting virtual experiments on on kind of virtual patients. Uh, to understand what certain healthcare kind of interventions and what the impacts of those will be. So I can't, I'm afraid, give you a huge amount of information on the on the biology because it's not something that I have a huge understanding about. <laughs> but, but we've been yeah. working particularly as, as software engineers on, on that project and working as RSEs to kind of improve the performance of those simulations by, by using Flame GPU. Flame GPU, could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so Flame GPU is this thing that I've alluded to, which is my combining my uh, my love of agent-based simulation and, and GPUs. The idea really with Flame GPU is, is to provide the same abstraction that AI and machine learning to be able to utilize GPUs to improve performance. So GPUs are great, but they are much more complicated to, to program. They are much more difficult for a software developer to use, particularly to get kind of the best performance out of them. So Flame GPU provides a level of abstraction that means that modelers can uh, describe models using simple kind of syntax. And then uh, behind the scenes, that is transparently mapped to GPU data and GPU algorithms so that they can really benefit from the performance, but without having to necessarily have the, the understanding of what a GPU is and why parallelism is important. So if I want to go into GPU programming, so I suppose that I could download or access Flame GPU for free. Uh, how is that available? Absolutely, yeah. So Flame GPU is open source. It's, it's released under a very permissive license. Uh, Flame GPU 2 is what I've been working on most recently, and we're, we're at the point where that's very, very close to being released. So Flame GPU 2 is, is really a, a big rewrite of the original version of Flame. And it's really exciting to me because we've, we've fundamentally changed the way in which it works uh, behind the scenes, which means that we can uh, have bindings for things like Python, which, which really kind of opens it up as a technology for, for a much broader audience. I would like to step back a little bit now from GPU programming and go back to the fellowships that you had. So there were two fellowships. And the first one is an academic one. And you mentioned that you felt a little bit lost after this fellowship, after the first one. Why was that? Yeah, that's right. So we kind of touched upon this uh, slightly earlier, Peter, when we, when we were talking about this idea of kind of masquerading as an academic. And, and I, I, I'd done quite well uh, at this point in my career, right? So I'd attracted quite a bit of, um, of research funding. Uh, I'd attracted quite a bit of industrial funding. I was working with lots of different people. It kind of came to the realization during this this kind of uh, this fellowship that I was on. So it was called the Vice Chancellor's Fellowship. It was funded by the Vice Chancellor right. of, of the University of Sheffield. And it was a three-year fellowship and it was focused around leadership. Uh, and, and leadership's really actually quite difficult because you work quite hard to, to become kind of good at as a researcher, but becoming a leader is is much more difficult. No one really prepares you for that in, in the same way particularly for myself I found that leadership was alluding to the fact that what they really wanted was people to go ahead and be hugely successful academics and, and, and lead in academic disciplines and that that really could never be me because I didn't really have an academic discipline I was working with a huge range of people I had publications in, in things that were kind of all over the place so I had these kind of smaller lower impact technical pieces but 
really the high impact publications were in fields like oncology and computational biology, mm. which were not really my domain. So it was very difficult for me to come up with this this picture of me as a as a research leader that kind of had a, a story where I was 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 an academic with a particular domain and focus. And, and, and that was really, really challenging, I have to say, uh, kind of coming to that realisation and thinking, you know, what is my research area? If I want to be a researcher, what is my research area? And, and, and it wasn't really what I wanted to do. What I wanted to do was to work with lots of people and develop lots of software. And at the time, I kind of felt like maybe I didn't fit within the, the, the academic model that, that I was within. So how did you deal with this challenge then? It sounds like there was a transitional moment. Now, of course, you're... Uh, identify yourself as a research software engineer but you know how how did that transition work for you well um it worked because of uh, the RSE fellowships and it worked because i became aware of the term research software engineer uh, so when the RSE fellowships came up and, and i saw them it was it was a real moment of clarity if you like it was the realization that there was perhaps an opportunity to do the things that i wanted to do Uh, and fit within the academic model in the way that I would like. So it was it was extremely well timed for me in terms of coming coming towards the end of that that kind of vice chancellor's fellowship that mm. I could see a path for where I I could go and I could particularly tell a story of of the fact that that was what I'd already been doing and and that's what I had a desire to do from the start. I mean, the University of Sheffield, where you're at, actually got awarded two fellowships uh, to you and then Mike Croucher. And how did you both use that to build an RSE community? It, so the way that it helped, um, yeah, and you're right, we did. We got two fellowships. Um, and I think uh, initially, I think EPSRC were perhaps a little bit nervous about how that would go because, you know, you put two leaders in the same room and, you know, see what happens. <laughs> But that's not what happened. Me and Mike got together very early on. Um, as soon as we'd been notified that we'd been awarded, if you like, we were on the phone to each other having a having a discussion. The interesting thing with, with me and Mike is that we came from two different places, right? So I'd come from this more academic side of, of kind of trying to fit within an academic model. And Mike was very much kind of uh, from the services side where he'd been doing lots of what he called long-tail research, so working not, not as a specialist, but much more as a generalist supporting people. Uh, and what mm. we realised when we got together is that there was a need for both of these things. Then about top-down and, and kind of bottom-up and, and, and specialists and generalists, and, and there's absolutely a need for both of those things. So what we did is we designed a, uh, an idea of a group that would uh, facilitate both of those, so it would support both of those things. So how did you... Bridge that gap between generalists and specialists. How does it work for you? We've always used this this idea of a kind of or an analogy of the hospital model, right? So the hospital model is that you absolutely need generalists, right? You need to have GPs that can triage with people, and they need to do that probably a lot more frequently than a, than a heart surgeon needs to to work on your GPU computing. And they need to have kind of very general knowledge of of the kind of the research software world to to kind of interact with lots and lots of people, but Occasionally, you do need to have, you know, a surgeon that can do GPU computing on the heart of your software. And you need you need both of those things, right, to be an effective hospital. You can't you can't just have one and not the other. And that's the kind of the, the model that we try to, to build and support at Sheffield. So we, we absolutely have specialists in particular areas, uh, but we absolutely have generalists as well. And, and both of those can, can kind of coexist and work together. Uh, so it's a question that I tend to ask people nowadays, unfortunately, around the coronavirus and how it impacts the work, in particular, how it impacts the funding. 
So do you see that there is a negative impact from your perspective um, in funding of research and funding new positions potentially in growing the group? There's always something though. Coronavirus and, and pandemic is the latest thing that's meant that university finances are tight, but the university finances are, are always tight somewhere or that mm. it tends to move around. So sometimes the, the faculties are very uh, flush with money and sometimes central services are much flusher with money. These things do move around quite a bit. So the thing that's been caught to the, the kind of the success of the group that we have at, at Sheffield really is, is building a group which is sustainable. Although we uh, ask for roles to be underwritten, the business model that we put forward very early on and the business model that I've kind of sustained in, in running the group is, is one of demonstrating value, but also demonstrating sustainability. So we, we cost recover on staff. They work on different projects so that they, they generate income to cover their salaries. We have uh, various overheads that we can track and we don't necessarily have those to spend ourselves, but we can track on them and report them and, and show to the university that uh, we're not mm. costing the university a, a large amount of money. So it's, it's never about making money. Uh, my ambition with the group is to break even, but demonstrate growing needs so that we can continue to grow. Of course, it's slow, right? So it means that we grow organically, but I think that that's a good thing. We try to grow slowly. We try to grow where we're always kind of adding value to projects. We don't want to be seen as a, just a pure service, right? So we don't want to be seen as developers for hire. We are collaborators. So we're not second-rate citizens of science. We are uh, collaborators. We're important in the research process itself. And as such, when we work with people, we try to always instill that, that idea so that we're working with you rather than for you, if you like. That is a very nice summary, Paul, and I quite like that because sometimes people might get a little bit confused with looking at research software engineers almost like consultants. You know, you go to Accenture and hire a few engineers for a project of your choice. But um, what you're saying is uh, it's, it's not like that at all. It's really like collaborating, like being part of a research team temporarily perhaps yep. because, you know, these projects end at some stage, but you're one of us basically. I don't know who came up with the analogy, but I particularly like the idea of the software Sherpa, where, you know, we're going to accompany you on your journey and do some of the heavy lifting, but, you know, you, you need to still get there yourself. We kind of collaborate and work with you to do that, but hopefully we leave some lasting impression with you, whether that be that we've we've improved your skill, we've improved your capability of writing software, your team is now more uh, producing more reproducible research, They're the types of things that we like to leave with groups. It's quite interesting. It's fascinating to me, um, the journey from what used to be actually, as you mentioned before, masquerading as an academic, but actually being a software engineer, to now having established roles within university. And the fellowships play an important part in this because you know, fellowships actually allowed people to identify themselves as research software engineers, get some funding for what they do, and actually build a community. So this is the way that it went or seemed to go in Sheffield and in other places in and outside the UK. So we have a new round of fellowships coming up. What kind of advice would you give to the new fellows? The advice that we give is, is probably a bit ambitious and determined, but I guess that that is, that is a given. If someone gets to the point that they get a fellowship, they're already going to have demonstrated that. Um, what I'm really hoping to see with the new fellows is for the boundaries to continue to be pushed. So at the beginning mm. of, of certainly my fellowship, RSE groups were very, very new. Right? So it, it was difficult to get RSE groups. And the fellowships weren't just about, they weren't seed funding for building groups. 
particularly, they were they were kind of addressing all of the problems of of kind of research software engineering and and, and recognition. But but some of those went ahead and built groups, and that's helped others. And and now there's almost I think thirty groups in uh, the UK, which is fantastic. So that that argument is there, and other universities are playing catch up. So I think the process of building a group now is much easier. But I'd like to see those boundaries continue to be pushed. Right, I want to see what can kind of come next. We've seen that there's been some success particularly with Jeremy Cohen and, and London and Southeast RSE at building regional networks and also with the N8 as well. I'd really like to see more of those kind of regional groups kind of formed. In terms of specific advice that I'd give to fellows, though, I would say reach out for help. One of the things about, and I mentioned before, that leadership can feel kind of quite isolating, particularly if, if you kind of constantly feel like you're fighting against mm-hmm. the tide, trying to get change despite the fact that you have a fellowship that, that kind of endorses and cements kind of what you're doing, they're funding leaders. They're not, not funding software development, such they're funding leaders. So they're, they're expecting you to, to kind of fight and lead and, and, and demonstrate change. And change is difficult and slow, and it can feel like banging your head against the wall. And as grateful as, as I am to be in the position I am with the group at Sheffield, there's still a lot of that goes on behind the scenes and, and my team don't necessarily always see that I try to protect them from that as much as they can <laughs> but there's still a lot of that goes on and being a, a leader and having a fellowship can can be kind of quite tricky but there's some excellent support networks out there so the RSE Leaders Network is a fantastic opportunity mm-hmm. to support you're not alone in in fighting this fight uh, and, and parts of your fellowship may, you may feel quite isolated and I'd say reach out to, to, to the community reach out to the RSE leaders get some advice and support uh, ask for mentoring and things like that because uh, it will it will really help you to grow as as a leader. And I guess the other thing is be amenable to change. So I, I never kind of planned on building a generalist group. That's what I've kind of ended up doing. You know, that's that's been a fantastic uh, experience. I wouldn't change that at all. It's helped me to deliver aspects of my fellowship uh, in new ways that I never would have. Oh, great answer. Thanks, Paul. We're coming to the end of the podcast now, and uh, I'd like to finish with two questions. The first one is, if you were to look back to your career, what would a successful career look to you? It's such a difficult question. I'm so glad. It is. It's one of the, like one of those interview questions people get asked, it's, isn't it? <laughs> it is. If I was preparing for an interview, I'd give you a very different answer to what I'll probably say to you. Because the answer is, I simply don't know, right? Things change very, very quickly. So if in, in terms of what would a successful career look like to me, probably it would be around continuing to support the people in my team, right? So it would be less about me and more what I can facilitate. So I'm, I'm also bought into the, the kind of the bigger picture now, if you like. So it's it, for me, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of gone beyond just software development and impact, but about supporting this community. And that's why I'm, I'm kind of excited by my society role. But I suspect that even after uh, my position in the society ends, you know, I'm, I'm still going to be someone that's continuing to advocate for research software engineering. If I was to look back on my uh, professional career and say, has it been a success? Then I'd be looking really at the bigger picture of, you know, have I managed to instigate change that has meant that uh, RSEs are, are well reflected and well looked after within within academia and, and, and within research? The last one is, what do you do in your spare time, if you have any? Being a parent's been a, a big part of what I do at the moment, obviously, particularly during lockdown where childcare has been disrupted and things like that. But other than yeah. that, I'm a, I'm a huge DIY enthusiast. And when I'm, when I'm not kind of looking after my daughter, I'm, I'm usually doing something, uh, building something. 
Uh, we've undertaken a, a house that we're living at the moment. We moved in a, a couple of years ago, uh, just before my daughter was born, was flooded. It had a burial in the garden, which is a whole other story, which I'm... I'm oh, my God, no, really? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you've got to tell us all about it now, Paul. Come on. Okay, all right. We've bought a house that was vacant, uh, and we, we bid for this house and, and discovered, once it got to the solicitor stage, that the previous owner was, in fact, uh, buried in, in the garden, uh, oh. which was... Completely, unusual. Completely unusual, yeah. It's not... A small garden, right? So there's just a small piece of woodland at the bottom, and it's it's kind of she's she's buried down there. There's no grave or anything like that. She's just it's kind of a natural thing. I actually think it's really nice, but it does it kind of freaks some people out. But we had to play some strange games with the mortgage company to uh, to kind of separate that piece of land, so it's it's not kind of part of the the main house and garden. I thought we were going to hear some kind of Yorkshire noir story. No, no, no. no. <laughs> it's, it's more common than you think, actually. Um, it's Is it? We'd come across it. But yeah, once we dug into it with solicitors, it's, I mean, it's discouraged. There's there's nothing to stop anyone from doing it. As long as you follow the kind of the legal guidelines, anyone, anyone <laughs> can do this. It's discouraged because of the problems it causes with mortgages and so on. But we're fortunate enough that it's far away enough from the house that it's it's not too much. Okay. Well, that's pretty impressive and quite a story, Paul. <laughs> Thank you so much for this interview. It was great talking to you. And uh, I wish you all the best, Paul. Great to speak to you, Peter. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and we would like to see you again in future. If you like this episode, it'll be great if you could leave a review wherever you download your podcasts from. And with that... Goodbye.